It's the first Monday of the month and we're responding to your questions. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 494. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show helps you discover leadership wisdom through insightful conversations. The first Monday of every month, we open up the show to respond to questions from our listening community. If you have a question you'd like us to respond to in a future episode, coachingforleaders.com slash feedback is where to go. I'm here with my best friend in the world, Bonnie Stahoviak, as always. Hello, Bonnie. Hello, Dave. All right. We've got a bunch of questions to respond to today, so let's dive right in. Our first question is from Liz. Liz asks, I'm looking for resources on how to balance the personal needs of employees with the needs of the business. How can a manager empathize with an employee while continuing to uphold the business needs? The specific situation is an employee requesting a schedule change due to personal needs, but it is not in the best interest of the company and unrealistic giving the employee's position. Bonnie, what do you think? This one's so hard for me because there's so much packed into here. And it isn't just the words, Liz, that you wrote, but it's also then how I interpret them and some of the ways that I'm thinking about the world and what's going on. This is my preface to warn you that I may may push you a little bit harder perhaps than even is warranted. There's a lot here that sort of locks me into thinking that you have presented this to us and also perhaps to yourself as a very dichotomous choice. I have to either meet the needs of the employee or meet the needs of the business. And then specifically what you said was, how do I empathize with the employee while continuing to uphold the business needs? The reason I'm pushing back a little bit is that we can kind of limit ourselves when we look at it that way, that it has to be this either or. And I don't pretend to have all the answers on this. I know that employee scheduling can be so, so very difficult to do, but I do think even just one illustration we can take, I can remember a number of years back, Starbucks had changed something about the way they were scheduling their employees. And it really started to cause a little bit of a revolt and nothing, nothing that ever, like there weren't any collective actions that were taken by employees, but you really started to see a lot of employees venting about the difficulties that was had. And it was something around that we really took away a lot of the freedom that employees had around their own scheduling and being able to pursue things like college degrees or take care of childcare or other caregiving sorts of duties. And they rather quickly reversed course. And that reverse in course both empathized for the employees, but also, of course, had the realities of how complex we can imagine it might be to try to schedule a Starbucks operation from something like five in the morning all the way to, I don't even know, Dave, are they open till 10 or 11? They're open past when I go to bed is the thing that happens there. (laughs) Yes, That's why I don't know what time they close. But I would be really wanting to, if I were you, challenge myself to stop thinking about this as an either or and to try to create ways for employees to help me think creatively about how to solve this problem, which is ultimately my understanding of what Starbucks did and my understanding of what I think you're ultimately trying to do. So you said it's not in the best interest of the company. I would kind of want to push back on that a little bit in the sense of perhaps if you only look at it 
Like I want to come in at nine instead of seven, but your business opens at seven and therefore there would be no one there to sell products to the, I mean, I understand the kind of spirit with which you're communicating this, but I want to go back to all of our employees and say, gosh, does it make sense for us to be open from seven to nine? Oh, we actually do get a lot of customers. And would any of the rest of you be able to come? Oh, it turns out you'd be able to come in at seven because you'd actually prefer to leave earlier because you'd be able to go pick up your mother-in-law from her chemo appointment or be able to accompany her to that. So I think if we envelop more people in the conversation about these things, we can probably arrive at a better place. And to share a personal example right now, I won't be sharing about this if it doesn't go well, by the way. Actually, I won't be sharing about it again to begin with, but where I am at at my institution, we're of course looking at various ways to slowly reopen parts of our campus. And one of the areas that I oversee is our library. So rather than me telling them, here's how you have to open back up again. Here's the hours you have to have. Here's who has to be on staff. That wouldn't really make a lot of sense for me to do that, by the way, because I don't know enough about the nuance of their operations for me to really make very good mandates to begin with. But I told them, I said, I'd like you to come up with a proposal that when we're asked for what a reopening might look like, where you've thought through these kinds of things. And lo and behold, in this particular case, it works out really well. There are some people who are unable to right now return back in person, but are able to provide services remotely, such as helping students and faculty with research, et cetera. So this has a happy ending kind of story. And I know they don't always work out that well, but when we engage people who we lead, in helping us solve this problem, especially because they have a huge stake in making this right. I find that pretty much every time I have ever done this, I've been absolutely surprised and delighted that they bring up things I wasn't even conceiving of. So I think it's worth having these more open, broader conversations. At the same time, I recognize businesses, yes, they do have needs. They need to be open. They need to be able to serve customers. There are things like that. But can we help people who we lead, have them help us solve these problems? Because ultimately, by the way, if I'm wrong and everything that you've said is 100% true and there's no other options for you, at least they feel like you cared enough to invite them into the conversation such that then if you say, no, I'm not going to be able to accommodate this, but they're going to know you really tried. They're going to know that everybody really worked hard to make that. And then that's ultimately their choice. If that's a job they're going to be able to hang on to without having that scheduling accommodation that you explored. Anyway, thank you for helping us. Russell, this gave me a lot to think about. And I know, I know Dave has a few things to share as well. I did have a few things to share, but you basically changed my mind on them. And your answer is way better than mine was going to be. So I'm just going to leave it there, Liz. Hope that's helpful for you as far as some some other ways to think of it. So let's go over to the question here from Chris. Chris asks, I'm doing some research for a creative breakout session with colleagues, and I'm looking for perspectives. How are you fostering innovation while maintaining business efficiency? What do you view as most important to being innovative and efficient? Hey, Chris, thanks so much for the question. And I will answer it for me, but I'll, I think, more so focus on what I see works for others and some of the practices that work well for organizations. For me, it is separating the time on operational things, getting work done, facilitating, reading, content creation, the things that I do as part of my professional work, and idea generation 
and thinking and trying to be creative. And I do set aside time to try to do that every quarter for myself, usually a few hours or half a day. And then at times when that comes up within conversations or within my work, I capture that and put that somewhere so I can separate that and then come back to those ideas later. I think the key for me is separating those, of being conscious that both of those happen. But I do find those mindsets really different. The thinking creatively and thinking about what's possible and what could be done better and the operational executing on things that need to be done and are already on the agenda. And I think that leads in really well with the work of Alex Osterwalder, who was on the show earlier this year. I've had so many people mention to me how helpful that conversation was around innovation. He is the author of the book, uh, The Invincible Company. And we've had people in our listening community who have purchased that book for their entire teams and are using it as a framework going forward of looking about how to be more innovative and how to think about new ideas. And one of the things that really comes out of that conversation and his research, Chris, is one, separating those two kinds of thinking, that the operational thinking, the day-to-day, we need to get work done, is a very different way of thinking than the creative, the what's possible, what might we do differently. And sometimes those are different people. It's certainly a different way of thinking. There are some people who do well at both, but most of us tend to do better at one versus the other. So being able to separate that a bit in the organization and maybe even amongst who's part of those conversations and who's doing those is often helpful. So the fact that you're asking this question is great of, you know, let's set aside time to actually think about how would we get new perspectives? How would we foster innovation? How can we become more efficient? So I love that you're thinking that way. So my first encouragement would be, yes, do that. Keep going and find those opportunities to make that space. And also realize that that's really different thinking for a lot of folks. A lot of us tend to be more on the operational side. So getting over to the creative thinking, the possibilities is a shift for a lot of us. And it's not always a comfortable shift. And it's not always something that all of us are good at. And so that's something just to be mindful of if you're doing this. The other thing that I really love that comes out of Alex's work is the invitation. And I've seen this certainly in my own work too, of try lots of different things, be testing, be exploring lots of different ideas. And there is a bit of the myth and innovation that, you know, it's important to focus on one or two things. And we kind of put all our bets on one or two or three ideas and we advance them and we hope that those pay off. The reality is, is most of the time is it's helpful if the organization looks at lots of different avenues, 10, 15, 20, 30 ideas, however many are out there and makes smaller bets on each one and gives each idea, or at least many ideas, an opportunity to get a bit of traction, and then to watch and kind of see what happens and what picks up steam, what is received well by a customer, what does the organization latch onto, what do you get good feedback on? And then once you have some initial data points, then you can make the bigger bets on a few of those ideas, the ones that are getting the better traction. So that's helpful for a mindset too. The other thing that I have found helpful in the past, and I've seen teams do this really well. So specifically during a breakout session, um, uh, we used to teach a methodology at Carnegie for leaders called the affinity diagram. And it's not a Carnegie exclusive thing. I've seen many organizations do this. In fact, I found a great article on 
how to facilitate an affinity diagram, and I'm going to put it in the notes for you, Chris, and anyone else who would find it useful. What it is, is it's a really nice exercise. There's lots of ways to do it, of course. You can go down lots of different paths. But at its core, it's getting people together in a room, ideally a fairly small group of people. You know, Even if you have a group of 30, it's five or six people probably answering a specific question, how do we do something better? And you get people together and maybe you grab a stack of post-it notes. And the first step is to have people answer that question, but answer it for themselves and to put the idea on a post-it note or on a note card and to have them generate as many different possible ideas as they can. So everyone does some of that idea generation on their own, their own thinking with reflection, and you spend some time doing that. And then you get all of them together and you get them up on a board. And there's a process for going through thinking of which ones look similar. That's where the affinity word comes from. What looks similar? What's different? What are all the ideas at? And you can even go through a process of sorting and voting. And there's a whole bunch of different ways to do it, depending on the organization and what you're trying to achieve. But it's helpful. I think the key piece for me has always been get the ideas generated first, have people independently be able to think and surface some ideas, and then start to put those together and see where the different overlaps are, what's one idea that informs another. And if you do a bit of that as an exercise, as a starting point for starting to think about how you pick up efficiency, how you think differently, I think it's a wonderful place to start. So all that in the show notes as well. What you're reminding me a little bit of, Dave, in what you're talking about is a little bit of the difference between leadership and management. So I think about the innovation. I, this is such an overused example, but the leadership would be, oh my gosh, I'm going to get it wrong. You'll you'll know this analogy where it's like one of them, you're seeing how to get up the ladder and the other one you're seeing if the ladder's leaning against the wrong thing or something uh, like that. Yeah, I've seen, I've seen that before. And I'm glad you mentioned leadership management because that is, you know, management's complexity, leadership's change. And so innovation is about change often. Yeah. And so you see so often where people think they get to choose one or the other. And I, yes, as we move up in organizations, we are often tapped to contribute more in terms of conceptual thinking. But if we try to treat these roles, the thought of, and I'm glad you didn't, by the way, but the thought of being innovative versus being efficient, which you never said, then I think it's a really dangerous place for us to put ourselves in because even people who are very high up in organizations still have to be able to conceive of what it's going to take in order to get there. They, they may not spend as great of a percentage of their time in those activities, but they still need to be able to conceive so that we can figure out together, is, it, is that ladder leaning against the right wall? Because part of it is the efficiency that you talked about. And if we are so patronizing toward those whose roles involve more of the management, more of the producing of the widgets, more of that efficiency, but don't think that they can contribute in ways that would enhance our innovation, we really lose out on an opportunity to tap into part of our team who could really, really help us. So I think we have to be very careful thinking about that. Like, I am very high up and couldn't waste my time thinking about how this gets done. I mean, there, there ends up being far too much of a disconnect. And then you're not able to really get close enough to where things are actually happening in order to go, what if, and you've already done this in the way you've asked the question, what if there are opportunities for innovation 
in those efficiencies that we could never have conceived of if we didn't listen and discern and, and, and really go explore. What a fun set of topics. It'll be fun if you have a chance to write us back or leave a voicemail and let us know how this goes for you. Thank you, Chris. Okay, our next question here is from Colette. Uh, Colette actually posted this inside of our uh, community portal, uh, Bonnie. She's an alum of our academy. She asked uh, a question I thought was fun, and I was just curious your perspective on it. What activity was the most helpful for you to decide the next direction for your career? From small changes to a monumental pivot, I'm curious about the process or resources that you would recommend. I love this question because it reminds me of how much of a disconnect I've actually had in my own life. I don't know if you've ever seen these pictures. A little, It's like a hand-drawn picture where it says, this is what we think success looks like. Or in this case, this is what we think a career path looks like. And you've got this nice little neatly drawn line that's very definitive on a path and predictable and planned. And then you, of course, flip the page and it says, this is what success or this is what your career path actually looks like. And it's just this huge, ridiculous scribble of a drawing. And that's really what I think about. And it's not, when I think back to my own career, it's not completely a scribble. I can see themes that emerge and I can see ways in which my earlier career in really unpredictable ways equip me to do what I do now in some really weird and wonderful ways. But I really do, I do think it's a misnomer that we can plan these things out. It's, it's just, I, I wouldn't even have had any ability to conceive that what I do today was even possible for me. So how could I have planned to get there? And so I saw this the other day on Twitter of all places. Like It's not something that only exists on Twitter, by the way, that's just where I heard of it. But it comes out of the whole, someone was asking the question of lifelong learning. They were asking, does anybody know where that first started being used? When it when did that term first become popular? And someone named Ramey Kalir, who's been on my podcast before and is at the University of Denver, he introduced me to a three-pronged approach to thinking about our own learning. There's the lifelong learning that we're familiar to. There is the deep learning, and there's the wide learning. And I'm laughing as I'm telling you this now, Dave, because I'm realizing one of them was supposed to be around building and growing your character and your sense of ethics, but I'm not sure which one it was. So maybe maybe lifelong learning was the overall one, and maybe there was one having to do with ethics and integrity and that kind of thing. But I wanted to speak specifically about the deep learning and the wide learning, because I think sometimes we think of this too exclusively. I'm laughing because today's theme of the episode must be dichotomous thought processes and how I'm opposed to them in pretty much every area of my life right now. So sometimes we get stuck where we think, you know, the goal is to be a specialist in our area and we're going to become, you know, extra good at this, this one thing, but we can't see the ways in which what we do is impacted by or impacts other parts of the organization or the industry. And then other times people go so wide, I know lots, I know a little bit about a lot of things, which is a great song, by the way, and also is representative. But then if you don't have any depth, it can be hard to grow your career as well. So I think a nice blend in terms of our lifelong learning, 
between the deep learning becomes really good at something, become really, really, really good at something, but not so good at something that you lose sight of the curiosity and the interest in the other parts about your industry, about the other things that are sort of tangential to what it is that you work on. And then even though I can't figure out how these all three fit together, I do think constantly reflecting and becoming a person who is radically self-aware, understands why were you put on this planet with such a rock-solid sense of one's own mission, one's vision, one's values. And it's, Dave, I'm teaching a class right now called Personal Leadership and Productivity, and we're reading The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, which I would, I can see Dave's typing that into the show notes right now. Such a good book. And what we were talking about was he he mentions having centers in our lives that are not helpful. And one of the centers that really resonated with a lot of the students, I was so glad that they are being already so discerning about this at such young ages, is this idea where you can get really caught up in what other people think. And as opposed to just having a character that says, no, this is the right thing to do and not spending as much energy on how that might be perceived and is it going to upset anyone? And anyway, just really, I really enjoyed that. So th- this is what a great question. I want to think some more about this. And I also want to get this right. <laughs> I'm probably going to have to find out more about this, this definition of lifelong learning, because it sounds really intriguing to me. Yeah, if you track it down, we'll post it in the notes here. So Colette, two thoughts, uh, one maybe really tactical, and then one big picture one. On a tactical side, uh, when I was three or four years into my career, I started my career in education, working in the for-profit education world, working in a uh, after-school education program, doing tutoring of students and math and reading. It was amazing work. I loved getting to do it. It was hard work. And I realized three or four years into it, as much as I had a passion for kids and, and still do and love supporting their learning, I also realized that it was not going to be my career path long-term. And so I decided that I wanted to move out of education and specifically primary secondary and actually work to getting to work with professionals, adults. And so that was a move from education into training, which are related fields, but actually very different in practice. And then secondly, there was a significant sales component to my work when I was in that education job. And I, you know, had the thought of like, I kind of like to get out of sales. I'd like to do something that is more instruction, facilitation, coaching, that kind of thing. I'd, I'd rather not be in the sales part. And so here I was in the education industry in a at least partially sales role. And I wanted to go into the training industry in more of an instruction role. And at the time I came across the book, What Colors Your Parachute by Richard Nelson Bowles. And it's a wonderful book for those of you who are in the process of thinking about career shifts and change. It's a wonderful starting point, especially the first half of the book. It really takes you through a lot of self-discovery and personal development exercises. And one of the exercises in the graphics that I remember from that book all these years later was different ways to make a career change. And he makes the point in that book that if you're going to make a career change like I was thinking about, of going from a different job as far as a different job function, and also changing industries, that doing both of those at once is really hard to do. Possible, but hard. Easier is to first change industry and keep doing the job you've been doing, or 
to change role, but to do it within the same industry or same organization, and then eventually make the second jump. So uh, as an example, being in education, uh, rather than being in education and being in sales of going from education to maybe instruction, and then later (laughs) going from being already in instruction, going to training as an industry of making two small jumps rather than making one large jump. And that was super helpful for me at the time because the role that emerged for me as an opportunity was at Dale Carnegie, the training organization. And so that allowed me to make the jump into training, but it was a sales role. And I think if I hadn't seen that chart beforehand and done some thinking about that, I probably would have passed up the opportunity. But because I was thinking about it from the long term, I decided, well, maybe I can get to an instruction role once I get into the training business and eventually make that shift. And in fact, that's exactly what happened. I ended up taking the role in sales. I had the training opportunity open up very quickly. And the other wonderful thing that happened was I realized I really enjoyed the sales component of it too. And so I was able actually to develop a skill set and to be able to do both. Thank goodness, because the 15 years I worked at Carnegie, the work now I do with coaching for leaders and and leading this business has required me to be able to be good in both areas. And having that generalist approach has served me so well. And I don't think I would be doing this today had I not made that two-step jump and in fact, never even completed it because I ended up doing both as far as job disciplines. So that was really useful for me. What Color Your Parachute is a great book and it's useful in so many areas, including things like salary negotiation and all of that. On a big picture level, Colette, the thing that always has driven my career decisions is first and foremost, heart. There have been times that I could have gone two or three different ways, especially early on in my career. There were, when I came out of school, there were a couple of opportunities that I could have gone down. And I always came down to what is going to really just make me want to get out of bed in the morning and what excites me about what this organization is doing in the world. And of all the positions I've had in my career, most I've enjoyed, some of them I haven't. Some organizations, you know, at times like everyone, I've had mostly great bosses. I've had times where, you know, I did not have good bosses. But I've always been able to get up and jump in and work and to feel like the organization, the work I was doing was meaningful in the world. And so that heart piece has been at the center of it for me um, every time. And some cases it meant I made less money or I went down a path that there wasn't as an an apparent next step or career progression long-term, but I always felt good about what I was doing. And so I would certainly make that invitation to you, Colette, and, and all that the decisions you make in your career, if you can find that heart piece, I think that leads you to wonderful places long-term. So there we go. So hope that's helpful to you. Glad I'm doing some thinking. I do have one other question for us, Bonnie. This is actually not sent in by anyone else, but it's a question you and I have asked each other a lot when we have done our date nights, which we have not done in a while because of COVID. We would often ask ourselves these two questions, what's giving you life and what's taking life away? And that's kind of our check-in for each other. And I thought that, you know, it being, uh, we've, we've had conversations like this within the Academy in the last few months, and it being now six, seven months that we've all been dealing with COVID. I'm just curious for you, how you doing? What's giving you life? And what's taking life away right now? When I think through these last six months, I am, for the most part, what has given me life is just an overwhelming sense of gratitude. 
the, and these are bunched together. You're asking two separate questions, I know, but I'm mushing them together because I'm overwhelmed by gratitude for what we have. And then at the same time, I also recognize just how privileged we are and how horrific so many others have it. So that is definitely taking life away. Just this, I already knew that this was the case, that that the cards are stacked against people based on the color of their skin, based on their identity. And then just something like the pandemic, everything else going on in the world, it just compounds things. And I, I very early in the process, I saw someone, a writer that I really like a lot. She was talking about that it's, it's hard because she, it's ironic because she is living with a very late stage cancer, but she's been able to live for quite some time with a very late stage cancer, a very unique situation to find herself in. So she always wants to you know complain about something, but then always realizes someone has something worse. So she, she described this as performing gratitude. And so I recognize, you know, a lot of times I feel like I'm supposed to perform gratitude. People ask how I am on a particular day, Dave, I may not be doing great. I may just be fed up with staying here in our house and with everything going on. Like I may, I may just want to vent and then, but I feel like I have to hold back the venting because there's just so much devastation out there. So I don't know, but it's, it's a mixed feeling. We do need to be able to name things that are bringing us great joy and the things we're grateful for. And we don't have to follow up every statement with, oh, we know so many people have it so bad. And then the so many people having it so bad right now just feels overwhelming sometimes. And I wish that there were more I felt like I could do. And and I realize as these words are coming out of my mouth, I am just being such the stereotypical privileged white person as I share this. But you asked the question and I wanted to be transparent in my answer. It's all mixed up for me. Gratitude and also on fire for we've we absolutely can do better than this we absolutely can do better much of what we already are experiencing could have been avoided and let's be doing all of our parts to to get on the other side of making this better thanks for that i, I thought of this through the lens of speaking of dichotomies <laughs> professional and personal on a professional level uh, a lot of joy right now in the sense that it's fun seeing our new academy cohorts coming together right now and just imagining possibilities for people and organizations in the future. And also a little bittersweet because we have some academy cohorts that are ending. And that's always a time of celebration, but also a time of, of some conversations and groups coming to a close. So that's, a, that's a, a bringing me life thing for sure. On a personal level, I was thinking about this this week, Bonnie, that you know, as, as challenging as the online and remote learning is, and to your earlier point, you know, we have it way better than most people do, but it's still, it is still a challenge. But one thing that's sort of interesting that's emerged is my morning times tend to be blocked out for kids and logistics stuff and getting people to school and making lunches and all that. And there's none of that to do right now because everyone's here. So it turns out our daughter's schedule is such that she has more time in the morning. So we've been playing board games together every morning, almost every morning. And that's been really fun and joyful for both of us to be able to spend that time. It's one of those things that, well, I wish we weren't in this time, is something that would never have emerged if we weren't in this time of just getting to spend time together, um, just the two of us. And then on the other side, in the evenings, because we don't need to get to bed as early, our son and I are reading a lot in the evenings and staying up a little later, and we're reading A Wrinkle in Time right now. And we just finished reading The Hobbit and getting into some like really great children's literature 
that I think if this hadn't happened, we also probably wouldn't have gone as as much in depth on that as we have. So that's been joyful. And then on the what's taking life away, I mean, I think about some of the situations you've told me about recently, Bonnie, the people you know, and I just think of how ill-equipped some people are and some leaders and some organizations and some cultures and organizations to be able to handle giving people bad news and being able to dialogue about how do we solve problems and uh, which you mentioned earlier to Liz's question, like engage and really do problem solving together. And there, I've just seen a number of situations in the last few months where people are just not equipped well. They, I, they mean well most of the time, but they are really causing pain and fear in people's lives. And I suppose it's possible to think like, well, gosh, that just happens in the workplace and maybe it doesn't mean it's a personal effect, but I've long thought, and I've certainly experienced myself, that what happens to us at work really affects our well-being as, as human beings. And if we are being treated as human beings in the workplace and we're being talked to and really valued for our opinions and, and engaged as thought partners, regardless of position and role, that that affects every area of our lives, both positive and negative. It's one of the things that keeps me going now, especially, is a leader who is doing a good job at being able to be vulnerable, of being able to be real, of giving people space to provide insight, to help, to problem solve, to grieve right now, can do a lot to support the mental well-being and happiness and resilience of people, not only the people who work for them, but all their families and friends that they interact with. And someone who is not able to do that well and is not equipped to do that well can have the opposite effect. So it's one of the reasons that we're continuing to go forward on everything we're doing and no end in sight on continuing to support leaders in any way we can. If any of these questions got you thinking more, several related episodes you might also want to check out that will dive into even more depth. One of them is episode 289, How to Lead Part-Time Staff, with my friend Chris DeFirio on that episode. Uh, Chris is a coffee professional and hosts the Keys to the Shop podcast. He consults to coffee leaders uh, all around the country and around the world of helping them to run successful businesses. And of course, a big part of that is in a coffee shop and many businesses managing part-time staff. And of course, there are universal leadership principles that are true for all kinds of situations. And there are things that are contextually different when managing part-time staff. And that is something that many of us are called to do on in our careers of being and also leading those who are managing part-time staff. If you're looking for some perspective on how to do that better, not only the mindset, but tactics, including things like scheduling, Chris and I really did a deep dive on that on episode 289. By the way, if you're in the coffee industry by chance, uh, Chris's show, Keys to the Shop, is a wonderful one to listen to. Also recommended is episode 406, How to Work with an Executive Recruiter with my guest, Becky D'Souza. I'm thinking about Colette's question of some of the activities that we've taken in the past to affect career change. And one activity that many people find themselves uh, engaging at some point in their careers is working with an executive recruiter. And yet, that is one of those things that almost none of us have had any training on how to do. Uh, If a recruiter contacts us, or maybe someone recommends a recruiter, oftentimes the first time that happens, or maybe even past the first time, we don't necessarily know what are the best 
best practices for working with a recruiter. And if you find yourself working with a recruiter now, maybe thinking of that, or just want to know more about how that works, in episode 406, Becky really walked us through her career as an executive recruiter, and more importantly, what we can do, be thinking about to leverage the success of recruiter really well. Episode 406 is where to go for that. And then finally, I mentioned earlier the work of Alex Osterwalder, his recent book on on how to build an invincible company. Episode 470 is a recent episode where Alex and I dived into some of the myths about innovation and most importantly, what we can do as leaders to help foster and lead innovation in our organizations. Uh, Definitely a great resource for you if that's top of mind for you like it is for Chris right now. That's episode 470. All of those episodes you can find on the coachingforleaders.com website. Just set up your free membership at coachingforleaders.com. When you do, you'll be able to search the entire library of episodes since 2011 with all of our guest experts, searchable by topic, tons of resources in there, many of them related to today's conversation on management skills, innovation, career growth. Those are three of the categories. There's about, uh, there's two or three dozen categories on the website. If you'll dive in and set up your free membership, you'll get access to all of that. Plus my weekly leadership guide that comes every Wednesday that has all of the notes and links from every episode, including this one. And of course, all the resources that I've pulled for you during the week that I think will be helpful to you in furthering your leadership journey. Plus access to my entire library, of resources, the member casts, the free audio courses, all of those are there for you for free inside the membership. Coachingforleaders.com for access to all of that. Next week, I'm glad to welcome Stephen Hart to the show. He is going to be teaching us about how to get noticed on LinkedIn. We've talked about LinkedIn a few times on the show before, mostly around our profiles and how to populate those. But Stephen's going to walk us through next week what we can do now to take the next step to get noticed online. Join me for that conversation with Stephen Hart. Have a wonderful week and see you back next Monday. Take care, everyone.